Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Ayer. Prashant, what's new this week? Not a whole lot, just uh, another day in uh, paradise, I guess. It's uh, up over 100 degrees here, so just enjoying that scorched earth mentality. I know, I was trying to figure out the right place to even set up to record today, because usually I record up in my attic and it is so hot up here. I decided to try and make it work but it is it is rough here too not as not as bad as down there i'm sure but and it gets pretty humid in carolina doesn't it yeah i mean it's obnoxiously humid because you know with the temperature i think it's probably like 94 or 95 degrees but then like you check the real fuel with the humidity index and it'll be like 98 percent humidity and feels like 105 degrees so it's just it's an absolutely miserable kind of feeling it's almost like miami weather yeah and miami weather is absolutely brutal so that's saying something that uh that's speaking my language a little bit more so We'll, we'll brave it and, uh, you know, we'll see we'll see how it goes. But the NHL seems to be uh, progressing on a couple of important things that I figured we should talk about today. It sounds like the momentum is for a flat salary cap for the next couple of seasons. Uh, TSN kind of had those details laid out with, with the possibility for a $1 million bump two seasons from now. But a flat salary cap could have really big implications for just about every team in the league. And so I I figured it would be worth kind of spending most of today's episode talking about the implications of that. What what does it mean for the Red Wings? And are there any potential major disadvantages or opportunities that it creates for them? Yeah, it's a really interesting scenario because it sounds like from Frank Cervelli's reporting that the plan right now is this uh, to go with this flat kind of cap of eighty one and a half million. There's no plans to escalate until the NHL hits a certain threshold of revenue. And I think their target threshold is $4.8 billion. And so, you know, depending on how all of this progresses, how many games the NHL is really able to get in, you know, when and if the NHL is able to get fans back into play, uh, we don't really know when the NHL is going to hit that target. And so for the time being, it seems like teams are going to have to operate with not only knowing that the cap next year will be $81.5 million, but potentially beyond that for one to two more years, uh, you could have that same cap. And so, you know, there's a lot of teams that made a lot of moves and maybe offered some extensions that uh, are now going to be a lot more challenging to deal with. And, and from Detroit's perspective, you know, this seems like a, a move that may significantly help their chances of landing assets or Uh, you know, potentially weaponizing that cap space and trying to take players off of teams that, you know, they the team simply just needs to clear cap space to handle the restricted free agents or be able to retool. And and that's kind of the scenario Detroit wants to be in, um, where maybe they can poach draft picks, poach good young players uh, who are on kind of cheaper cap hits, uh, but teams just can't afford to keep them. Yeah. And the position that they're in so far as of now, cap wise, they've got committed for next year about 24 million among forwards, uh, about 25 million, I guess, uh, about 11 million for defensemen and 3 million for goalies. So that really keeps them under $40 million committed. So less than half of the cap. They do have quite a bit of work to do um, in terms of just re-signing their own players. Obviously, they have deals to get done with Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi. You would expect those to bring, what, between 11 and $12 million total? Yeah, I mean, if you use evolving uh, hockey's projected salaries for those guys, I think they have Mantha at $6.5 million and Bertuzzi at $5.3 million. So, you know, combined just under $12 million right there. But I even wonder, like, do those change a little bit? Because normally when you do those projections, you're factoring in some increase of cap over the life of the contract. I don't know. Like, I mean, it, depending on the length of the contract, it could be quite different. Um 
I, mean, I don't think it's I don't think you're going to go more than like a million either way necessarily, but um, I I can see that being a difference in how teams are even building these contracts out because if if like you just said, teams that had signed contracts expecting it to grow uh, are are in some of the toughest positions. I do wonder how much the cap really because of the the, the duration of this potential flat cap, uh, how long this is going to impact it for for these contracts. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and and the, honestly, the way their model works is they predict percentage of cap uh, allocated to players, and so you can kind of scale up or scale down um, the salary cap to to kind of see what it would look like. And so, you know, at one point, the the estimation was that uh, the salary cap could be as high as eighty four million dollars, and under that scenario, they kind of had Anthony Mantha around six point eight million. Uh, and they had Tyler Bertuzzi around 5.5 million. Yeah, scale it back down to 81.5 million, which is what we're going to work with. And that's where they get the cap hit of 6.5 and, and 5.3. Now, I think there's also the Iserman factor in all of this and that he's consistently come under, you know, these projections when he's re-signed free agents over the years, you know, with Steven Stamkos being able to come in under, with Braden Point coming in under, you know, a handful of other, you know, players he's signed over the years have come in under Andre Palat, Tyler Johnson, things like that. So, you know, potentially you come in a little bit lower than that. So I, I have a tough time seeing the Wings getting, you know, more than 12 million committed to those two. Uh, so if you want to operate with that assumption, I mean, there's a there's a solid chance that uh, the Wings are going to have a fair bit of cap space to work with. Yeah, let, let's go on the conservative side then and say it's $12 million. That seems like it, like a fairly, you know, that's a fairly safe ballpark guesstimate. That would give them, what, $28, 29000000 million to work with. To They still have to fill out the roster. You figure it's probably six, seven guys, but but a lot of those are going to be minimum deals. Uh, that gives them potentially room to take on some bad contracts if they want to do some work in free agency where they may have more. And I know this will be the one that you probably are, are less interested in. And, and a lot of people will probably be less interested in, but if they wanted to, they could potentially be one of the bigger free agency players just because most teams project to be pretty strapped. And I think it is that opportunity to take on other teams, bad contracts to free up space or, or, or not necessarily bad contracts, but contracts that they're going to cause other teams problems that seems like a real opportunity for the Red Wings now. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think there's a couple of important factors, you know, to think about here because, uh, you know, when you look at Detroit's cap space, you know, breakdown, you know, you did it by position there, Max, and and that gives you a good assessment of, of the holes that the Red Wings have right now. There's a couple of other challenges that they face. Uh, first being that, obviously, Henrik Zetterberg's contract is still active and will still be active next year. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges there is, the wings for years of taking advantage of the long-term, you know, injured reserve by, and the way that works is once you get up to the cap, uh, you're able to then basically maximize the, all of that cap hit. And otherwise you're not going to be able to exceed uh, the cap like the wings have done in the past. So that Zetterberg contract in all likelihood is going to count full 6 million. So I think when you're factoring Detroit um, and you're kind of working on their cap math, I would kind of conservatively operate that they've already got 46 million committed, you throw the $12 million to Mantha and Bertuzzi, and running through the rest of Evolving Hockey's projections uh, on an $81.5 million salary cap. They've got Robbie Fabry at $2.5 million. I think you and I have talked the Wings will likely bring back Madison Bowie. They've got him at $1.8 million. Uh, we've thrown around Sam Gagne. They've got him at a $1 million. Uh, Evgeny Sveshnikov will likely also be back. They've got him at eight eighty k. They've got Dimitro Timoshov at eight forty k. So you pull all those guys together and maybe, again, very, very conservatively, if you say they decide to stick in-house on defense and they promote, 
you know, Sider and they keep Lindstrom and Chalowski up as well. You're talking about just under 67 million committed to 12 forwards, 8D and a goalie. So you still need two forwards and a goalie to kind of round out that roster, uh, given how Detroit's operated in years past. So even with that being said, you're still probably saying they have 10 million to work with. And that's a lot more than a lot of these other teams, um, you know, that have gotten themselves up against the cap right now. Yeah, exactly. And and the, with the Zetterberg thing, I mean, it, you're right. It, it will count until they hit the cap. Uh, until they hit the cap. But if if they do, like, I think you can still almost count it as space because if if you go, you you can exceed the cap by the amount of the LTIR or the or the difference in the LTIR if you're already at that cap. Is my understanding of it. So it's like if you're maxed out on the cap when it when time comes, then you can use the LTIR, the the different, the amount of uh, the contract on LTIR, is that? Yeah, yeah. So basically, like, by the time the start of the season hits, the Wings yeah. would want to be kind of right at that threshold of the cap to get the full benefit of that, yes. you know, Zetterberg contract. And in years past, that's actually worked against Detroit. That's a big reason why they were always spenders in free agency was they had the Johan Franzen deal uh, that, you know, they were able to use for years and years and years in long-term injured reserve. Recently, they've had the Zetterberg deal. And so you you were kind of incentivized to get to the cap so you didn't just have this sitting dead space. You wanted to get to the cap so that you could effectively utilize that. Um, you know, if you're in Detroit's position and you try to get to the cap, I mean, now you're talking about potentially $16 million in spending uh, that you've got available. And if you're not, then you're potentially looking at about $10 million in spending Either way, I still think you're in an outstanding position to leverage that into assets and or good young players. And there's a number of teams across the league right now that are in these significant penny-pinching situations. Um, And I feel like this would be a good opportunity to kind of run through a couple of those teams. Yeah, so the one that jumps out to me is St. Louis, a team that I believe is already, at least for this season, they're over the $81.5 million mark. I don't think they shed much money at all. I think their forward commitments go up. Uh, they Their defense goes down slightly, but they still got to pay Alex Petrangelo. And unless they let him walk, that is almost a guarantee that they are going to need to go. Uh, they're going to need to do something here to make that work. Yeah, exactly. And so St. Louis is a team that's really in trouble. They've got already almost $80 million committed to the cap. So that leaves them you know, effectively $1.5 million in cap space. And uh, even if you let Petrangelo walk, you still need to, you know, fill that roster spot. And at the same time, they also have Vince Dunn as a restricted free agent on the back end. And Vince Dunn's been an excellent yeah. player for them. Uh, while he's not likely to get a massive pay raise being a restricted free agent, he's still a guy that's going to get, you know, a couple million there. And so uh, St. Louis is definitely in trouble uh, from that cap standpoint. And there's a handful of players you can look at on their roster if you're Detroit and say, hey, if you want to go ahead and give me uh, this player, I'll take this money off of your hands. But in addition to that, you need to package something, you know, with that. And so for Detroit, there's uh, the number one guy that kind of stands out and has been talked about is Jake Allen uh, in net. He's got $4.35 million left for one more year. Um, and so with them already having Jordan Bennington, that's a very expensive backup to pay. Detroit does need to fill the, the backup goaltender spot. It's only a one-year deal. Potentially, if you get Jake Allen and maybe St. Louis gives you a 2021 first, 
to do that so that they can free up 4.5 million. I think that's a great option. The other option is Detroit's kind of, you know, you and I have talked about how it's not ideal to walk into next season with Valtteri Filippo and Franz Nielsen as potentially your second line center. And there's really nobody in the system right now who's going to be ready for that role next year. Potentially you say, hey, I'll take Tyler Bozak at 5 million for one year. And again, you can potentially get away with that second line center role going to Tyler Bozak. And you, you take $5 million off their hands. And again, St. Louis has their first in each of the next three drafts. So uh, potentially they're a team you want to leverage. Yeah, Bozak has a modified uh, no trade. So that is one complication there. But he and Alexander Steen, who also has a no trade. I mean, those are not guys who are at the, at the top of St. Louis's depth chart anymore. And guys who, if you, want, if you need a clear space, those are both contracts at $5 million or higher. That would make sense, but just, you know, slightly additional hurdles there that that would need to be overcome. I am curious with the Jake Allen one, because the Red Wings are in a position where they need another goalie. Where do you, how do you think, what do you think Jake Allen's capability is at this point? How many games would you feel comfortable playing him if you're the Red Wings? I think if you're Detroit, I mean, you could basically operate like you, you walked into this past season where you thought it was going to be a Bernie Howard kind of 50-50 split. I think you could conceivably walk into the same situation next year with Jake Allen. He certainly had his ups and downs. When he's on, he looks great. When he's off, he looks terrible. Um, I think you could walk in maybe saying, hey, Bernier's going to go you know, 60-40. And if Jake Allen plays well, maybe you ride him a little bit. He's only 29 years old. You've got only one year here. I don't think he's a future goaltender for Detroit. Um, but potentially, you know, you can use him to take some of the miles off of Bernier, who, you know, at times last year was just getting peppered with shots over and over and over. And potentially you keep Bernier fresher for a little bit longer. In terms of the average stats, which is important to note because he only played 24 games, he technically just had the best statistical season of his career. Jake Allen. Yeah, and I think you have to look at the difference between the St. Louis system and Detroit system. Yes. Obviously, the Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues, the arguably worst team in the last 30 years, Detroit. There's going to be vast differences. And I think when you look at Allen's kind of style of play, I think he's very similar in the sense to Peter Morozik in that he's a very athletic goaltender, not necessarily positionally sound. So he can make the spectacular save, but he's not necessarily the guy that's going to be like Jonathan Bernier that's literally always in the right spot um, and and was for most of last year. So I think he would struggle a bit in Detroit to, to put up the same numbers. But that being said, he's a guy that if he can bring you an asset along with that, paying him $4.4 million for that one season is not a bad move. It also lets your goaltending situation be very dynamic come 2021-2022, where maybe you're looking at giving Keith Petruzzelli and or Philip Larson a shot uh, at the NHL level. So one thing about him having a decent season this year, though, is I wonder, does it lower the urgency level of them or for what they would be willing to package to, to move someone like Jake Allen? I wonder... Is it first-round pick or bust on, on taking on a contract? I mean, it's, it's what, what $4 million, I think, for Jake Allen? Four and a half? Yeah, four, four, basically four and a half million. So does it, if, if it's not a first-round pick, it, let's say it's a prospect, are you willing to do something like that? Yeah, I mean, you could also you know, take a look at St. Louis's uh, you know, prospect pool. I mean, there's a handful of guys they've got uh, available that maybe you want to take a look at. So uh, to, to me, it's not first-round pick or bust. And in fact, if it's, if it's St. Louis and they're – They've got, um, you know, their first round picks, but they don't have their second round pick next year. They, you may not be able to, um, 
you know, settle for that third round pick just to take on Jake Allen. So I think it's certainly reasonable to look into their prospect pool. The, the Red Wings did just hire Jesse Wallin as one of their chief scouts. He had been a scout in St. Louis for the last six years, I think. And so he would have had a hand in potentially drafting some of these St. Louis prospects. Certainly should have a good idea of who has lived up to it and who has not and what the issues are. I mean, he's a year into the Red Wing system now, so that's one year of information lag. But I think there would be some familiarity there. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great guy to give you some insight into them. And and obviously the Blues don't necessarily have the strongest prospect pool by virtue of uh, you know, being one of the top teams right. for the last few years. But there's a handful of guys that are interesting. You know, Nikita Alexandrov um, is a center. He's, uh, you know, drafted a couple years back. I think he's a good, you know, potential play, uh, player to look at. Clem Costin's another guy that uh, St. Louis, I think, took in the first round a couple years back. He's another winger that would be a good guy to look at. Um, and they're not necessarily St. Louis's top prospects, but they're probably their second or third best prospects um, in the system. And maybe they're they're willing to to part with one of those guys knowing that they've got a pretty solid core and moving Allen would allow them to potentially keep Petrangelo or give a bigger deal to Vince Dunn or potentially fill Petrangelo's void with a better free agent. That's a good point. They've got Scott Perunovic coming in too, who was the Hobie Baker winner last year, I believe. Yeah, Perunovic obviously would be the the prize you could get out of that because if you can get that left-handed defenseman out of St. Louis's system, and you know we've talked about how Detroit's starting to do some good work on the right side with Sider and Philip Peronic, I think if you're able to add a left-hander to that as the Hopi Baker winner, that would be a, a nice get for Detroit as well. So really, there's there's players you could pilfer out of St. Louis if they're willing to do it um, to get some of that cap relief. Oh, I just meant with like Perunovic, like does that does that open up the ability to like get other guys out because they because they have a new guy kind of entering who seems like he could be ready sooner. You know what I mean? Like like there's less yeah. uh, like they're they're more able to deal from that spot because they know they've got this guy coming in who adds. I mean they they've already got a fairly veteran blue, blue line with Petrangelo, Pareko, Falk, uh, all those guys, and now you add Perunovic and 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 Dunn obviously there as as your young guys. Maybe you are more willing to to, to trade from your prospect pool. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's a great point. And you know, he signed his ELC, and he so he's he's able to go, you know, for 2020, 2021. And, and maybe that's the move St. Louis makes is they come to terms with letting Petrangelo walk, and they let you know, kind of knowing that Perenovich is going to come up. That being said, they still probably want to use that or want to have more cap space, even to bring back Vince Dunn, because again, at seventy nine and a half million. Uh, you know, you're not being able to give Vince Dunn a whole lot. And as a restricted free agent, he could be an attractive target, um, you know, for an offer sheet, because I don't think you'd have to give him more than, you know, $4 million before you'd force St. Louis to have to make a deal in order to keep him. I think it's very interesting. All right, let's look at some other teams here. Um, Vancouver is one that obviously spends uh, or has spent fairly freely in recent off seasons. They obviously had the big Tyler Myers contract last summer that people were immediately raising kind of red flags over. And now those red flags are really coming to the forefront. I mean, they, they do have some contracts coming off, but they just traded for Tyler Toffoli. And, and you'd think maybe there, there would be some interest in re-signing him. They've got to do new deals for uh, Jake Vertanen, Tyler Mott, Troy Stetcher, if they decide to keep him, Chris Tanev, if they decide to keep him. They're not, uh, and, and I believe Jacob Markstrom is a free agent after this year. So that's a big one if they want to keep him, who's, who's turned into one of the better goalies uh, in the Western Conference. So they're a team that re- this year they were right up against the cap. They've got some contracts coming off, but you figure if they want to get some of those re-signings done, if they want to improve the team in any way, they're another team that has some contracts that jump right at right out at you with Louis Erickson being at the top of the list uh, among among teams that 
could be kind of targets for this kind of trade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Louis Harrison, six million for the next two years is a guy that you know you certainly want to look at. Uh, Brandon Center's at four point four million for one year. He's another guy that you might be able to look at. Um, and then again, with uh, with Vancouver's kind of situation. Uh, not only do they need to worry about cap space this year, they also need to worry about it kind of lining up because Elias Pettersson is likely going to get a monster deal, and he's up after 2020-2021. And so you want to make sure that, again, your your cap system or cap space looks really nice. The other player that we talked about earlier in the year uh, that's worth revisiting is Sven Berchi, who they've just elected to bury in the minors, and so he's $2.3 million dead on their cap. Um, because that's all the relief they're able to get from that buried cap hit. So yeah, again, Berchi is an attractive player that I think you could, you know, look at um, because Vancouver's got some, you know, weird issues with him being buried with the recapture penalty for Roberto Luongo. Uh, they still have Ryan Spooner's buyout on their cap, so they've got a lot of weird little things on there that kind of limit how much true cap space they actually have. So anything they're able to do to that effect would be helpful for them moving forward. Any Vancouver names? So, I mean, obviously Erickson, if he plays, he's not high up in the lineup, but is there anything that is it is a first round pick or bust there, or is it is this a prospect situation? That's a longer yeah. contract. Yeah, it's it's a tough one because I mean Vancouver, you look at their their first round pick this year is conditional, and so it depends on I don't know that we've gotten clarification on how it's gonna be handled, but effectively if the condition on it was if Vancouver didn't make the playoffs in 2020, it would transfer to a 2021 first rounder. And if they did make the playoffs, um, you know, it would stay in 2020. Uh, I think it depends a little bit on how that's handled because they may or may not have their 2021 first round pick. Um, but that being said, Vancouver's got a, a relatively solid, um, you know, prospect pool. I think obviously at the top of the list is Nils Hoglander and, and Vasily Podkolzin, um, you know, from last year's draft. Those two guys are absolutely dynamic. Uh, I think Vancouver would be hard pressed to move either one of those guys, um, you know, given that how how outstanding they've been, how relatively fresh they are from their draft year. But you know, that being said, there's a handful of other guys in there. Another guy, I think, again, left-handed defenseman to look at is Ole Ulevi um, from a draft couple years back. He's playing in uh, Utica right now, Vancouver's minor league team in the AHL, and and he's a guy that I think. Uh, is a good puck mover on the left-handed side. And so potentially he gets that deal done for you, um, you know, if you're Detroit. So he's a he's a prospect I would certainly look into um, if I was trying to make a deal with Vancouver if uh, it came down to a scenario where they weren't willing to move their first-round pick in back-to-back years. Support for Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team perfected the greatest trimmer ever created and have their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water resistant technology allows you to groom in the shower. And since I know there's Red Wings fans everywhere, I'll add that Manscaped just launched in Canada. For those listeners in Canada, you can be one of the first Canadians to experience these products. But no matter where you are, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. 
So go to manscaped.com today and use code THEATHLETIC. And then you know I'm going to bring up Nashville here next because I think that the, the Kyle Turris fit makes a lot of sense for the Red Wings in every way except for it's a long contract. I mean, he would slot in again, kind of like we talked about earlier, as that second-line center. Nashville is a team that has a little bit different of a situation coming in because there are kind of some options to take that center spot. I mean, they, they've already got Johansson and Matt Duchesne, but Mikhail Granlin and Craig Smith both becoming free agents this summer, so maybe they just decide that they don't renew either of those guys and they, they deal with it. But Cur- Turris has four more years at $6 million on his deal. If you brought him in, I have to imagine that's going to get you what should be the highest possible return out there, even though he might also be the best player we've discussed in this conversation so far. Um, he's he's no longer kind of the top of the lineup kind of guy that, you know, he was a third overall pick at one point, but he still was about a half point per game this year. I think that would have put him top five among Red Wing scorers and obviously different supporting cast influences that. He showed chemistry with Anthony Manth at the World Championships uh, last year. I just think that this makes sense in a lot of ways. It's just that the contract is uh, kind of the, the, the most difficult to to stomach. Yeah, and that's kind of how I felt about it, and that's what I've said for the last you know few months as we brought up Turris's name. I mean, if you're Detroit, the whole point right now is over the last couple of years, you've kind of been stomaching these long contracts that have been pinned on the books and and now you're finally starting to escape them. You know, Jonathan Erickson's deal is finally up. The Franzen deal is finally up. Zetterberg's deal will be up, you know, next year. Uh, you know, you're coming up on the end of the Darren Helm contract with the last year of that. Um, so a lot of these long-term deals that were not uh, great, and that being said, you know, the, the Zetterberg deal was fine. The Franzen deal was fine. Those are different issues, but... Having those long-term contracts, again, limits your ability to be flexible year after year. So Detroit's finally in a situation where they're walking into basically, as of right now, the 2021-2022 season with four contracts on the books. And that's the kind of flexibility you want to have when it comes to non-star players. You want to have really the only guys on the books if you're in an ideal situation being Dylan Larkin and Anthony Mantha. Um, and then beyond that, there's really no one else that needs to be under contract longer than that, potentially Tyler Bertuzzi. Uh, and so I don't know that you want to take another four-year deal and add that onto the books, a deal that's also going to age in the wrong direction. And we, you know, we've all seen how quickly some of these players can go downhill and actively be negative kind of impact players. And at $6 million a deal or per year, it's going to be a lot harder to move that if that comes to be the case. And you just really don't want to be limiting, uh, you know, the ability to be flexible moving on. So I'm, I'm staunchly opposed to taking on uh, Kyle Turris because I just think it doesn't make a lot of sense for Detroit's rebuild structure. The one thing it does do, though, is it gives you a guy who, you know, he he's been a high pick. He will be able to, as, as these high picks come into the system, I know people hate the good in the room argument. I'm not going to make it too strongly here, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's irrelevant to this conversation in terms of the kind of players you're bringing in. But ultimately what it's about is, are you willing to kind of buy a really strong asset? Because at four years at $6 million entering the, this, this, this next cap reality that the NHL is going to be into, it's basically what can $24 million get me out of Nashville's farm system if I'm if I'm looking at this to, to make a trade? And I have to think that is going to be the best possible asset. Now, you have to ask, is, the, is there going to be a fit? Because if it's just like, let's say Nashville has the number 19 pick in this year's draft, 
Is the number 19 pick in this year's draft enough for you to take on that contract? No, I don't think so. And Because even though it's a very deep draft and we've covered it at length, I still think the ramifications of hamstringing your salary cap for those years ultimately is going to limit your ability to, to turn money over. And, and again, you have to, if you're Detroit, you can't just be thinking about this year, the present right now. You need to be thinking about what am I going to need to do in those three years. And so just think about some of the contracts you're going to have to sign, right? You're going to be re-signing Philip Zadina uh, and you're going to want to make sure you have a fair amount of money available to him if he makes the jump that you think he's going to make. You know, Moritz Sider's contract, you're going to want to make sure that after 2021, 2022, if he's made the jump he makes, you want to be able to pay him that money. You're going to have to pay Joe Valeno. Again, if he makes the jump, you're hoping he makes. You got to have that money in the bag and taking on a contract that far out really limits your ability to kind of project and predict uh, and basically handle all situations that could happen. Because let's say Philip Zadina hits, you know, he's he's doing all the work, he's putting in the work right now. He comes out 2020, 2021, and the guy drops 30 goals as a 21-year-old, you're going to say, oh boy, I need to make sure I've got plenty of money to lock him up to a long-term deal. And so... I just can't justify that. Even if you're bringing in other guys, you have to also think about who Detroit's drafting this year because potentially if it's a guy like Marco Rossi who's NHL ready on day one and you're putting a three-year deal right now and that kicks in 2020-2021, again, at the end of 2022-2023, you're going to need to make sure that you can, again, give him the money necessary. And if that Kyle Turris contract's still sitting there at $6 million and the NHL cap hasn't really recovered, you're in... A big issue. And now you're the team that's having to give away players in order to re-sign some of your young guys. So I just, I don't think it's a good idea, even if you're adding something like the 19th overall pick. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. I mean, you're ultimately looking at this not for the short-term hurt, which would be virtually zero. I mean, in 2020, 21 and 21, 22, the Red Wings cap is in such pristine shape that Kyle Turris is not going to affect that one way or the other. $6 million is not going to affect that. When you start getting to 2022, 23, and 23, 24, those two seasons are the ones where you really have to consider it because that's when you are expecting to have new contracts in in some combination with Philip Zadina, Philip Hirona. Uh, Hirona already will have kicked in by then. Uh, Zadina, Sider, Valeno, this year's first round pick. That That's when all of those players could potentially be coming up. And I, I do get $6 million on the cap at that point. Now, all of a sudden, are you the team that's trying to move that contract? And I get that. So um, that is relevant, I think. But I, I just look at things that I say, if your ownership is going to be willing to dole out the money and it's not going to hurt you too much, uh, then I think it, if you can buy a first-round pick or a top prospect, then I think that is absolutely incumbent on the Red Wings to try and do but I get that this might be maybe slightly a bridge too far in terms of the length of that deal. Um, I just think, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's other deals uh, that we've talked about that are more, you know, easy to, that are easier to manage down the line. It's just those are also not going to have quite the same payoff. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you want to look for an example of what I'm basically talking about, look no further than Toronto, right? They hit their draft picks in back-to-back-to-back years with Matthews, Marner, and Nylander. And the problem that they ran into was they then had to pay all of those guys a lot of money because they're all very good NHL players. And the issue they've now run into is Toronto is so cap, you know, basically stuck up against the cap that they've resorted to, to kind of throwing in these veterans and they can't seem to do 
just enough to get over that hump. And one of the deals that's kind of been an issue for them is the Freddie Anderson deal at $5 million. Um, you know, that's been a big issue. They had to move out Nazem Kadri uh, again because he had a more expensive deal. And so it's it's some of those moves that is just preventing Toronto from being a truly great team and only a good team because they, they had to pay all these guys that had these other big money deals out. And so they had to ship guys out in order to make these deals. And you don't want to be Detroit having to do that. So I, I think that they're an example of why you need to be very careful. You need to have really good cap flexibility, not only for the next one to two years, but really three to four years when you're in the position of Detroit where you're drafting these potentially elite players who are going to need new deals in three years. Don't you think there's an element of counting your chickens before they hatch, though, with that? Like, like being Toronto is a much preferable situation to being, you know, the team that still hasn't broken through because they just didn't get enough talent. I mean, it's great to assume the Red Wings are going to hit all their picks. And I think, you know, the people they have in place are very smart. And I do think they're going to get good players here at the top of these drafts. But, you know, if you're passing up high-level assets under the assumption that you're going to have all these unreal players and they're all going to be such superstars that they're going to get you know, these, these huge dollar contracts, like part of me wonders if like, if there's a little too much, um, are are, are we kind of counting their chickens before they've hatched yet? So to speak, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's fair. And, you know, to be perfectly clear, I don't think Moritz Sider is a Norris trophy winning defenseman. And I don't think Philip Zadina is going to win an Art Ross. Like I don't think they're in the tier of a Matthews Marner Nylander, but when you're in Detroit's position, Every year with all of your draft picks, those are lotto balls that may pan out. And this year in particular, you've got a very deep draft. All I'm trying to make sure you do is you just don't want to go too far with the type of player that you're going to go to out to get to net you assets because it can be problematic. And, and Toronto has run into that problem uh, you know, multiple times, like I said, that, you know, they had to deal Kadri. They had to ship out a first round pick to get rid of Patrick Marlowe in order to be able to do that. They, when you have those contracts on your books, it, it just limits the ability to be flexible and handle all situations. And so, you know, I just think four years at six million when you don't know when that cap escalator is going to kick back in and you know you're going to have at least four to five new contracts to have to deal that are all going to require pay raises, even if not significant, still pay raises. Um, it just it's a little uncomfortable for me uh, to take a shot at like the 19th overall pick. I think that's perfectly fair. And I don't want to spend too much time on this one because I don't think it's particularly like more important than the others. I just thought it was, you know, because it is the contract that is the largest was the one that merited a lot of discussion here. I mean, if you look back to even last draft, the Hurricanes were able to get a protected first round pick out of one year at Patrick Marlowe at that price. So uh, maybe maybe there's something to the idea of just some of the guys we've talked about earlier, those, those being kind of preferable targets. But I just think at one year, you're just less likely to kind of get the, the same compensation. But there is obviously a point where the compensation level has to make sense for Detroit too. And, and, and I certainly get that uh, four years is a long time at that high a cap hit. No, no question. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, it was a perfect scenario for for Carolina last year to be able to to take on that Marlowe contract because Toronto was hamstrung and they had a lot of guys they needed to yeah. resign. You knew it had to happen that way. And, and that's kind of a perfect storm. So you may not have that exact situation this year. I think the closest one is depending on what St. Louis wants to do with Alex Petrangelo. If they truly want him back, then, yeah, you may be able to take on a couple of guys from them for uh, assets, knowing what St. Louis's stock looks like. I think Tampa is maybe the other team 
you know, depending on how much they're going to have to pay uh, Anthony Sorelli and, and Mikhail Sergachev um, and Eric Chernak. And they're also going to have to retool their blue line a fair bit. Uh, they've got a lot of money tied up. So there may be another team that you could squeeze an asset out of. They do have their first round pick in you know the 2021 and 2022 drafts. So maybe that's the way to go. But I think those are the right players to target where it's this high reward because of this significant, you know, this certain circumstance. And I would be hesitant to jump too early just because the tourist deal was the only one on the table. When the other thing that the wings can utilize is you can just carry this dead space forward right. to the trade deadline. And at the trade deadline, when someone wants to make a deal and potentially they need to ship money out or they need someone to take on salary in order to make the, the cap hits work, that's the same concept. And, and potentially it's of a higher importance and a team is more likely uh, willing to give up an asset like a draft pick when they're reasonably confident of where they're going to be picking. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about Tampa is there's not a lot of truly bad contracts there. So like, you know, you talk about like Andre Palat, for example, but Andre Palat at 5.3 million is not that bad. I don't, I don't, I think that's the kind of situation they proved it last year when they traded JT Miller, they got a first round pick for that, right? Like they've proven they're not necessarily going to be boxed in that way. I guess you could look at maybe Yanni Gord or Tyler Johnson, but those again, four and five years remaining each at 5 million or more dollars. So um, I'm not even so sure that, that those would be as kind of profitable of, of, uh, of options because of those players are still pretty productive. Yanni, Yanni Gore didn't have a very good year. I guess he'd be an exception, but that's still five years on his. Right. And, and so Tampa, you know, from that perspective, they don't have great targets. You know, Alex Kaloran's maybe the best right. one at 4.5 million for three years. It's at least a little bit shorter on that end. And, and again, 4.5 million may buy, uh, Tampa enough to get one of those deals done. But Tampa to me is uh, right there with St. Louis in terms of being cap strapped. So maybe they, they try to get creative with, you know, who they move out and, and, and how they choose to, to retool for the next season because they, they only have three defensemen under cap hit for next year, uh, and that's not including Mikhail Sergachev, who's going to need a new deal, and Eric Chernak, who's going to need a new deal. So yep. they're going to have to find a way to get it done, and, and potentially they're desperate enough to move some stuff out. Yeah, they're going to have to move. There's no doubt they're going to have to move stuff out. I think they have like $5 million or something like that to, to yeah. get Sorelli, Sergachev, and Chernak signed. Like, there's no way of getting that done. Um, I, I think they're going to have to move someone. I just wonder if they don't end up being the one getting the asset. Like, maybe they move one of these guys and they get a second or third round pick because that's still value for the other team. If a team's taking on Alex Kalor and they're getting a guy who had like 26 goals and 45, 49, or whatever it was, points last year. Like, they're still probably willing to pay something for that. At that 4.45 is not a bad contract for a player like that. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the tougher situation with dealing with Tampa is, you know, their assets are actually good. So, yep. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're not going to get a first-round pick potentially out of them in order to do that. And, and maybe the way to go is you offer sheet, you know, Sergachev or, or Sorelli and see if you can do it on a lower deal. Um, but... That being said, uh, Detroit, you know, has a lot of teams I think that they, that they could target um, to potentially get some money off of them. I think there's one other team that's worth talking about, um, you know, before we, we move past this. And I think that team is Arizona, um, mm. which for years and years and years has been the team taking money from people, taking assets from people, being more than willing to, to serve as that partner. The problem for Arizona is 
They've got $79.9 million committed to the cap next year. Now, that does include Marion Hosa's deal. Uh, that's $5.3 million. That's going to go on LTIR. But even still, that does give them potentially uh, that $5 million to work with. And they have a couple of guys that are going to need new deals. Vinny Hinestroza, uh, who's been a productive young player, he's likely going to need a new deal. He's a restricted free agent. Um, and then Christian Fisher is another guy who's going to need a new deal um, as a restricted free agent. But the big thing for me is, does is Arizona willing to take a step back? They traded for Phil Kessel. They went out. They got Nicholas Jalmerson. They traded for Taylor Hall. They did a lot to generate fan excitement. But are you willing to now step back because you're not able to pursue Taylor Hall in free agency? You're not able to be a player in free agency and do you potentially you know, worry about losing some of that excitement that you've just built in your fan base? And so is Arizona a team that's maybe desperate to ship out some of their deals uh, that they've made? You know, guys like Derek Stepan, who are getting six and a half million for uh, 2020, 2021. Uh, Michael Grabner's getting three point four million at, for 2020, 2021. Are they willing to move out some of those guys uh, in order to stay competitive and kind of build on the momentum that they've built in the last year. I think they're an interesting case to look at. Yeah, who would be your main target there contract-wise? Is it, I mean, Stepan, I guess? Yeah, I think Derek Stepan would be the guy that would kind of fit that quintessential Patrick Marlowe deal. He's a 35-year-old guy. He's starting to, or sorry, 30 years old. Um, But he's not the same player that he once was, uh, you know, for years and years and years when he was in New York. I think he certainly dropped off, and at $6.5 I think... If you're Arizona, you want to get that money back if you can without taking anything on. Um, and potentially you're willing to move something out to do it. Uh, Arizona's you know, 2021 pick, I think, is conditionally tied to if Taylor Hall re-signs. Um, so I think that's a little bit tricky in terms of how that works. But even 2022, they're a team that if they're willing to move that 2022 pick... I'm not confident that that's not a lottery pick. Like if I'm Detroit, that could be very much a situation like what Ottawa just got from San Jose where Arizona substantially regresses. And now all of a sudden in the 2022 draft, the Shane Wright lottery, potentially you've got two lottery picks. So to me, they're a team that I'm going to target there. And if they're, if Derek Stepan gets that done, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a move you want to look at. And as when you bring up the possibility of Taylor Hall resigning, I mean, there's kind of, slightly that incentive against it with the idea of having to give up an additional pick. But uh, that also could be the incentive, or, or, or if it is something that they want to do, that is kind of the incentive for them to move players out, is the need to sign, to, to come up with the money to sign Taylor Hall. Yeah, exactly. And and that's where I think it's, he, it's a very unique situation in Arizona because, like I said, you know, they, they jumped the gun early, in my opinion. They did what you don't want to do. That team was not ready um, to really contend uh, sustainably, they made a bunch of deals, and now they're in this awkward situation where they're either going to lose all that leverage because they've got some bad deals on their books that they didn't let expire, um, or they choose to be aggressive and they have to find a way to move assets to move some of this other stuff out. So again, very unique situation, but if Arizona wants to capitalize on everything they built, I think they're a team that you can target from a first-round pick standpoint. And if I'm Detroit, their 2022 pick uh, in the first round is the guy is exactly what I would want. Okay. All right. I like that. I, I really like the thinking of thinking ahead to 2022. I almost, if I'm the Red Wings, 
might even ask every team for their 2022 pick as a first priority, just because that's the one at this point that's looking like it's going to have the uh, the incentive, the, the top incentive of them. You saw what it did for Ottawa this year to have the additional pick, and maybe even if you're talking to any of these teams, like are you asking Nashville instead of their 2020 pick? Are you asking for them for their 2022? Are you asking for Vancouver for their 2022? St. Louis for their 2022? Can you get those teams more excited about a deal that the asset isn't coming off for two more years and you're just doing it thinking ahead to this one draft? Like maybe you could try to stockpile two to maybe even three picks in that 2022 first round. That's exactly it. And I think that's the that's the key to this strategy is it's maximizing the variance. The team doesn't really know where they're going to be in 2022. Like yeah. if you make a deal for a first round pick at the trade deadline for that year's draft, that team is relatively confident that that's not going to be a high pick if they're moving it, right? It's generally a playoff team that is pretty well set in making the playoffs or very much in contention. They know they're not giving up a top 10 pick. But that 2022 draft from right now, a team like Arizona, I could very easily see being one of the five worst teams in hockey. There's just so much that's going to happen in that next year and a half that you just don't know. And if you're able to pry that asset out, the 2022 draft is looking incredible. I mean, you've got Shane Wright, who I've already talked about, who's already had an outstanding year in the OHL, but there's still Brad Lambert, who's already playing in Liga, uh, and he's an outstanding player. There's Matthew Savoy, who's going to be an outstanding player as well. Uh, you're conceivably talking about three elite players up at the top of the draft, and if you're able to net one or two additional picks in that lottery, uh, you're looking really, really good, and you're potentially looking like Ottawa's looking this year. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, real quick before we go into a couple questions, do you think an opposing GM is more or less likely than – I mean, it is a kind of kicking the price down the line, but there is that variance. Does that make it harder or easier to get those picks in a trade? I think it's. I think it makes it harder if you're ta- if you're dealing with a smart organization because again, they're not going to want to give up an asset that's got a lot of variance attached to it. Um, so, to me, I would think across the league it'd be a little harder to get, but that doesn't mean it's impossible to do. And and really. You know, if you're Detroit, I think that's your asking point for a lot of these teams is, hey, give me something in 2022, uh, particularly for teams that you are less confident in them being good. I think maybe a team like St. Louis, they're reasonably confident that in 2022, I'm still going to be a good hockey team. Um, That being said, you can always see the bottom fall out like it did with San Jose. um, And St. Louis is an older team, so potentially they do have a precipitous decline. Um, But a team like Arizona may be less willing to give it up knowing that Uh, there's not as much confidence in them being a good hockey team in 2022. So I think it all depends who you're dealing with, but on the whole, I would expect it is a little bit more difficult to do that. Okay, on to the mailbag. Um, We're going to start with a question from Joe who wants to know who in this draft would be the best fit to play with Philip Zadina. He does not specify a position here. So if you want to pick a defenseman or a winger, I suppose uh, that would fit. But I'm I'm guessing there's some inclination that that it's a uh, sorry. Yeah, I'm guessing there's some inclination for it's a center, but winger, I guess, makes sense, too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think there's two guys that are going to be in Detroit's range to pick from. uh, And one is Cole Perfetti, who uh, has been touted to have really the highest hockey IQ in this draft. When you watch him play, everything seems to slow down. Um, you know, he, he's a very, very elite uh, thinker of the game. And so I think as a setup man for Philip Zadina, uh, it would be outstanding to watch those two play. 
so without a doubt, I think he's an excellent uh, person to slot on that second line um, next to Zadina. And that's even if Perfetti doesn't pan out as a center. He may not. He may pan out on the wing, um, given that he's a little bit on the smaller side. But that being said, either way, I think he's an excellent playmaker for Zadina. And then the other guy is Marco Rossi. I mean, I think he just can't say enough about uh, his two-way game, his ability to get after the puck, his ability to retrieve pucks, his ability to find you know the open space and create space for his teammates. I think you know Rossi lives around the net. Uh, I think he's a guy that would be an excellent playmaker next to to Philip Sedina. The one guy I would add into that is Lucas Raymond on the opposite side of the ice from a winger perspective, also. Um, but I think all for the same reasons that you just talked about, all three of those guys we just mentioned are smart hockey players. Zadina is a very smart hockey player. Um, and I, I think that's what you want with him is someone who's going to think the game on the same level, if not even potentially even like in a in the case in you know in a perfect world, someone who could think the game even better. Right. Um, and then, you know, you're just dealing with, with your high end top draft pick, high end offensive players um, on the same line, let them work together and, and really bring the best out of Zadina. I think if you can get him with guys who are seeing the game, the way he does seeing the ice, the way he does, they can run give and goes, they can, they can run those kind of cross slot passes to set each other up. That's kind of the, uh, the, the perfect world scenario from this draft, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look back at Zadina's comments after his first year in Grand Rapids, uh, you know, he did express being a little frustrated because when he's playing in Grand Rapids, I think he I think the quote was kind of uh, a little difficult to ascertain what he was trying to say. But it came across as like some of the guys that he's playing with weren't necessarily thinking the game the same way as him. And it ended up not being the same style of hockey that he was accustomed to. And I think that's because he is an elite hockey thinker. And I think if you put a guy like Perfetti or Rossi or Raymond next to him, you're going to have him really blossom, I think, at the next level. Yeah, he's an incredibly smart player. I think people have kind of pigeonholed him into this lane as a shooter, but he he makes really nice plays too when he's with the right players. And I think this draft has the opportunity to give him kind of that wingman. Um, But while we're on the subject of Perfetti, Red Wings Talk asked uh, that, you know, the, the reports on Perfetti, and we had one last week on The Athletic, um, tend to highlight the hockey IQ and hands and the skating as kind of the, the weakness or the question mark. He wants to know our thoughts about Perfetti's ability to translate into a top six forward, given kind of the, the question of the skating. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think if I'm looking at all the players towards the top of the draft, and I think I texted you this, the guy that I'm most confident in being able to play on the first line, regardless, you know, Uh, of what else is going on is Cole Perfetti. And I think that's because of his IQ. Um, You know, I think skating being a weakness, you can work on your skating, you can work on your leg strength. Uh, I think there are some things that you can do to, to get a little bit better. But at the end of the day, you don't have to be an elite skater if you always know where to be. And I think that kind of comes up when you think of some of the guys Red Wings have had over the years. Henrik Zetterberg was not an elite skater by any stretch. He was a good skater. Um, but not elite by any stretch. But the thing about Zetterberg was his IQ was off the chart. He was a guy that knew where to be, knew where the open ice was, knew how to protect the puck, and therefore he got where he needed to go. Um, Pavel Datsuk was not a blazing skater. He was not a guy that was going to beat you up the ice. In fact, you know, one of the famous quotes from Brett Hall is when they saw Datsuk walk into the locker room for the first time, they saw this pigeon-toed, bow-legged kid that all of a sudden you put him on skates and he was slowing the game down to his pace. I think that's what you see a little bit with Perfetti, not saying he's going to be like either one of those guys at the next level, but I think his ability to think and know where to be is going to make up for any issues that are there with his skating. Yeah, I think when when we talk about skating as a question mark for Perfetti, it's a question mark insofar as 
is he going to become a true star? To me, it's not a question mark of is he going to be able to play in the top six because once you are in that offensive zone, and this is a point that his coach made to me, like the speed stops being quite as important. And so if, if you're going to be a, a, just an absolutely elite player in the offensive zone, then I don't think the speed is going to prevent you from being a top six player. It's just a question of can he work on it to the point that it, it can, number one, help him be a center, and number two, help him be kind of that true star. But there are, there are star players in this league who are not elite skaters, and there are there are lots of top six players in this league who are not elite skaters. So I would not say that the uh, – the skating would, I mean, we're already talking about him, right, as, as a top 10, potential top 5 pick, considering the skating. I certainly am not someone who who's, thinks that, that it's a major risk to prevent him from being a, a top 6 player. Yeah, completely agreed. All right, and then last one we'll get through quick here. Uh, Mark wants to know, what have you been barbecuing? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, I just uh, I did some nice roast chicken uh, of late. I think that's a, that's a staple around here for us to do in my household is that. Um, probably going to do some bur- burgers here later in the week. Uh, got to do what you can in this 105 degree heat. Yeah, absolutely. We've had the grill on plenty, although we had to, it was having some problems earlier that we had to work out, but we've been doing, uh, burgers. We've, we did brats the other day for the fourth and then, uh, more recently, or I mean, a little farther out, uh, our neighbor Cody, who covers the Tigers for the athletic came over and did a brisket on the grill, which was unbelievably right. good. So shout out to Cody Stavenhagen, who is a much better, uh, barbecuer than I am. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. That is going to do it for us today. Thank you guys for tuning in and sticking with us as always. And we will be back at you soon, uh, with more.